I'm very excited about our topic today, which is the whole world of algorithmic underwriting, follow-only underwriting, smart follow, whatever you want to call it. But it is a big change that is sweeping through the market. And it's something that I think is going to become a key part of everybody's underwriting strategy is doing things in new ways. And I guess we could say it's, it's underwriting by looking at data as opposed to underwriting by necessarily looking at individual risks. And it's a different mindset. It's a very interesting area. And we've just got the perfect people with us to talk about it today. Gilbert and Will from InsureX. Welcome to Insurance Uncut, the podcast where we explore the big issues impacting the general insurance market. I'm Charles Cronier. And I'm Jessica Clark. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by LCP. We'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch with your questions or feedback via LinkedIn or our website. Let's kick off with this week's episode. Huge welcome to Gilbert Harrop and Will Isles from InsureX. So I guess as a way of starting, it'd be great if, if you could just introduce yourselves, Gilbert and Will, just a little bit about your background and how you came to start up InsureX and kind of the journey so far. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having us on the show. So I'm Gilbert Harrop. I'm the CEO and co-founder with Will of InsureX. And we're building what we call a digital capacity exchange. So quite simply, we're looking to connect brokers in the London market with carriers in a digital manner to trade capacity. We think this is a, a fundamental shift in, in how the market operates into being a very data-driven marketplace and doing that kind of at scale. And we think this is going to be a, a real reshaping of the market. My background, very briefly, I was, I was an ex-underwriter. So I saw how it worked as, uh, for six years as a property cat underwriter. And then I did an MBA, ended up running MS Amlin's reinsurance strategy team before deciding to found InsureX about a year ago. Great. How about yourself, Will? Oh, thanks for having me on. I'm head of data and technology at InsureX, also co-founded the business with, with Gilbert. So if Gilbert's the markets guy, he's the one out in the market making the deals. I guess my, my job is to to build the platform and put together the data sets that let those let those algorithms fly. I met Gilbert a few years ago as head of analytics at MS Amlin. But I, I think before that, I, I'm more of a more of a technologist by heart. So I've worked for a few different companies, most notably Zipcar, which was quite a transition to move from a car sharing club into the city and into uh, syndicated London market insurance. Before we dive into today's topic, I'd be quite interested just to understand what it's like starting a business, you know, how you kind of came together, what have been the kind of key challenges, but also, you know, what did you want to make sure you got right when you started this journey? It's pretty scary, to be honest. <laughs> We've been going for, for a year and I'm, I'm really happy I'm doing it well. The fact that I met him at MS Amlin, I think, is, is incredibly helpful to meet your kind of co-founder before you decide to make that jump. So so, so I think we're, we're quite lucky from that respect. I think we're also quite lucky that we had done quite a bit of work together at MS Amlin. We were tasked on, on a number of projects to, to think about how data could be better used at the point of underwriting. And it was actually kind of out of some of that work together that we started to realize that there's this kind of, there's this fundamental kind of market failure in terms of how data is shared between brokers and carriers. And and so, so yeah, one, one of the tasks that Will and I were, were working on at Amlin was to think about, well, how do we improve that data at Amlin? We realized that the problem is 
by the time the carriers get it, it's almost too late. You need it upstream of, of the carriers for the work and the care to be put on the data before it flows to the carriers. And so that's, to a large extent, what kind of insurance is doing. It's being in that kind of digital layer, working with brokers to help structure and where possible enrich their data with all sorts of third-party information, whether that's firmographic information or whether that's working with um, people like LCP to put an actuarial overlay on that and then pass it to the carriers. And so so carriers now get much richer data, but they all benefit. It's not each carrier trying to piecemeal do this work. So there's there's real advantages in having that kind of in, intermediate layer. I think the thing that I uh, also has really captured my imagination, I've really enjoyed, is just how... We might be the first people solving our own problem in our own market and in our own space, but we're certainly not the first people to start a business, to get registered to pay tax, to do all these different things. And just how much of an ecosystem there is out there of people you can lean on. And that's probably been my biggest learning over the last year is just how many people we, we've met and have advised us and, and helped us out. It's a pretty cool place to be. And well, I think that's a kind of great point about how do you work better with other people? Because I think that's what, what one thing the industry can do a lot better on is, you know, whether, as you say, it's on kind of, you know, things like accountancy, which you can just partner with, or, or whether it's working with people like LCP, where we've, we've made a real play to have partnerships. And I think, yeah, there's, there's, quite, there's probably quite a, le- a lot of lessons for the London market to think about how do we kind of collectively work on problems, not necessarily just saying it has to be the market through a sort of governing body, but actually how do, how do firms sort of genuinely partner to, to solve these kind of complex challenges. And of course, one of the things that you've done is you've become part of the Lloyd's Lab process. Do you want to talk about what that's involved and what have been some of the benefits? We're actually it's slightly scary. This is week 10 of the Lloyd's Lab, of notionally 10. So we've got demo day next week. Shout out to anyone who'd like to come 6th of July. We'll be doing our demo day presentation. But that's been an amazing experience. And to be able to be based in Lloyd's and really engage with the market, we've had eight mentors from across the market, both brokers and carriers, has been, has been fantastic. To kick off the meat of our discussion, why do you think it is that firms are increasingly looking to things like algorithmic underwriting, portfolio underwriting, basically data-driven underwriting. Why has it become popular and what is the benefit that it potentially holds out for insurers? So so I, I think there's maybe two, two that really stand out. Is One, there's a fundamental market need for it and that's that need is driven by expense. There's somewhere between kind of 35 and 40 points of expense depending on where you are in the, in the underwriting cycle. And that just feels too much for the insurance product. And then I think the second aspect is this explosion of data. And I think, Will, you're probably better off to sort of talk about it. But there's, you know, we've suddenly gone from a world where there's sort of not enough data to really do advanced kind of insurance pricing to suddenly where there's probably too much. And it's how do you sift through that and work out what's useful to do the pricing? Certainly, uh, when I worked at Amlin, I worked with a fantastically talented team of people there. And we were doing modeling around, for example, wildfire locations in California, but also marine behavioral analytics, you know, saying where vessels are going and, and risk scoring those. And it struck me that, that you know, there's, to take that vessel example, there's reasonably accessibly, reasonably accessibly, probably two, two and a half thousand attributes that you can get on every vessel. And of course, it's very difficult for a person to individually sift through those you know, 2,000 columns of data, how many ships there are a day in an SOV to make an underwriting decision. So it struck me that there's an evolving requirement for underwriters to think less at the sort of individual risk by risk level and more at the holistic portfolio level. I still think, you know, in a complex specialty market, which London is and exemplifies, you're always going to have that need for complex bespoke risk by risk underwriting. But a lot of underwriting decisions can't be made by a person in the same way that 
I can't be a capture. I can't look at how many thousands of images of a of a cat and tell all of them in half a second. But you know, jokes jokes aside, there is an explosion of data, particularly at the underlying asset level, and there's a uh, and there's a need for kind of tools and techniques to adapt to that new way of the world. I was kind of interested in the LCP view of clearly you you work in a, in a number of industries, not just insurance, but also you work in kind of outside the London market. And, you know, I think some of these kind of tools and techniques that we're sort of maybe championing here have been happening, you know, somewhere like the UK motor market. It's a very data driven, very competitive market and kind of maybe there's a lot that the market can learn from those other spaces. And again, maybe to partners, it's about working with the right people who've got that knowledge that sort of straddles the two sides to kind of bring that in and think about how that's kind of actively deployed in in this marketplace. I think that's absolutely true. And that was something we touched on on a previous episode in the sense that the London market could probably learn a bit from how Personal Lines has developed in terms of the data and the analytics that, that it can use. You're absolutely right, Gilbert. It is very driven by data and they have a lot more available. But as you say, as it grows in the London market, how can we utilize it? And I think there will always be a slightly more kind of specialist expert kind of involvement in interpreting that data but probably being underutilized at the moment. Yeah, this is where we talk a lot about enabling the market and working with kind of augmented underwriters. You know, I think there's a lot of sort of doomsday predictions, oh, the underwriter, you know, is dead. And we think kind of completely the opposite. The underwriter will be even more important. It's just how that underwriter operates. They'll be a lot more data-driven. They'll probably be able to operate at kind of far higher scale. But the role of the underwriter is absolutely critical to understand how to kind of bring all that data together and work with very data-driven teams, whether actuaries or under data scientists, to, to understand that and to allow them to build an, an opinion on, on particular portfolios. And I suppose what I sense from speaking to people in the market is that there's a real opportunity where underwriters have got genuine expertise to the point where others in the market are keen to follow them. There's an opportunity to kind of leverage that model up and rather than just having a broker filling the slip to really build out on that and have lots of other carriers who would kind of programmatically be happy to follow in certain proportions that underwriter. And I mean, it creates lots of liquidity and capacity in the market. I think it creates lots of liquidity. It also allows, if you think about where the logical extension, it, it allows the market to become really specialist, but operate at a real scale. So, you know, no longer do you, you know, you don't have underwriters who are, who are such generalists who maybe do just marine. They can really focus in on one particular area where they really specialize in terms of coming out with pricing. And then they can operate on a more, a broader portfolio on a broader basis, on, on a more portfolio basis. So there's kind of, I think this is, yeah, it's a really exciting development. We, we actually think it's, it's exciting for those underwriters and could really allow the market to significantly grow whilst still retaining that kind of the, the importance of the role of the underwriter. Yeah, I think we sometimes talk internally about this idea of an increasing bifurcation in the market between your sort of very underlying risk asset data-driven lead underwriter. You know, I mentioned marine behavioral models before. You know, these are the guys who really are specializing at scale on in, in terms of really understanding the assets. And I think the interesting thing that we're seeing is an, an explosion of people who are interested in in developing more complex following strategies. You know, I think gone are the days of, of, you know, X is on the policy and I like X, therefore I'm going to follow. It's now far more about what does the overall participation of this portfolio look like and how am I weighted versus other players in the market? And that, that's certainly something that we're, we're putting a lot of effort and emphasis into because it's, it's quite a new and emerging practice and, and one that really excites us. 
Earlier, Will, you mentioned the different tools and techniques that you're developing or using to understand the data to help the underwriters develop these kind of better insights. Could you talk in a bit more detail about what tools and techniques you mean there exactly? Sure. I mean, I mean, I suppose there's what we're actually building out ourselves, I guess, you know, effectively our trading platform. And I suppose our contention is that it's great that underwriters are looking to, as I say, utilize more advanced following strategies. They're looking to be more advanced leaders. I think one of the problems that the market has at the moment is it's very difficult to move data around. You haven't really got anywhere you can go in, set a rule that says, I want to follow behind ABC leader on marine cargo policies that have a certain financial structure. And that's certainly what we're developing out. I think there's also about having a, a really good, robust data model that underpins that. So that's one of the things that we've put a lot of effort into is building a, uh, you know, a data model that really works at scale for the policies, for claims and for participants, and then building in underlying asset data as we delve more into that. So I, I think that sort of trading platform is probably one of the big things that we, we've developed out that addresses that. And it seems that there's a real hunger amongst underwriters for better data, more data in order to be able to kind of justify the approach that they're going to take under these formulaic or algorithmic strategies. How ready is the market in terms of, you know, the brokers or others who need to collate and supply that data? How ready are they to serve the needs of the underwriters? It's a really good question. And, I, you know, I think honestly, it's a mixed bag. I think the big positive I'd say in all of this is whatever I might say about individual data sets and what we can and can't do with them. I think the big thing that's changed in the market over the last five years is you wouldn't go into a single leadership net team now, I think, whether that's in a, a broker or a or a carrier and find that, you know, data quality or, or you know, data as their asset is not very, very high, you know, top three, top five on their agenda. So even if they're remediating their data, they are actually remediating it. It is top of the uh, the list. But yeah, I suppose getting down into the weeds of it. Yeah, it, it is a mixed bag. You know, I mean, we, we've been working together for a little while now, Charles, and we see that data is variable from, from different places. I'd say there's a bit of an 80-20 rule that goes into a lot of underwriting. And unfortunately, I think that's going to continue for a bit longer. It's about how do we bring these things together, conform them, standardize them as much as possible. But we need to now start putting in the right kind of platforms, the right sort of standards across the market that mean that we have better data five years from now. Data feels like a challenge, but that's kind of one that I feel that you know about that's growing and developing. What are the other key challenges you see in this space are you getting any pushback, for example, from people? Are there any, you know, you're having conversations where, where people kind of are not as on board with this change at all, maybe? So, so one of the things that's been really interesting for me is, and I think we're lucky post-pandemic. I think, you know, we were trying to do this two years ago. It would have been a hell of a lot harder because people have said, yeah, of course, digitalization is happening. But we've got other things that are more important. There's, you know, there's a soft market. There's, there's a thousand re reasons why this doesn't work. I think the pandemic, people working remotely for 24 months, they realize now we do need a change. And what's been interesting for me to understand is it's kind of there's willingness, but they've got to find a way that it works with their current business. And that's that's often where we find the loggerhead is kind of how do you you know, how do you present it as a real opportunity they can jump on today rather than a kind of a broadly nice idea? You know, there's, as Will says, there's probably not a management team in the market that wouldn't say we want to be more digital in five years time. How? That's a much more challenging question to answer, right? And that, there's a role, I think, for people like Injurex and people like LCP and others that are serving the market to help guide people through that process. And there's, there will be a number of different routes and, and it, it is different for different businesses. 
So what would be the typical challenges that would be faced by an underwriting firm who traditionally has, you know, transacted business in the normal way at Lloyd's, wants to not be left behind by this data-driven underwriting trend, but is perhaps unsure of how best to dip its toe in the water and get involved. What are some examples of how you're seeing firms take those early steps and where do you come in in terms of helping them? Yeah, I mean, we definitely encourage firms to kind of play to their their strengths. So if they're good at something now, how can they think about how, how sort of digital and better use of data is going to help that? And so a lot of our work is trying to engage with them on that. We work both directly with underwriting teams and, and we allow them to have access to our data and then structure underwriting rules within our platform. But we also work kind of more directly with the kind of CEOs and the people who are running portfolios to understand how can they kind of fill a hole in their portfolio where they're not writing a bit of business how can they use our data to also transact where they're not currently sourcing business so there's kind of it definitely is a bespoke sale kind of engagement approach but it's about understanding kind of what makes sense for for individual business rather than trying to sort of do a, a sort of one size fits all earlier will when you were talking about obviously your career you mentioned that you had big experience in like other industries with, with Zipcar. have you learned any other lessons from other industries that we should be adopting in the insurance industry as you're kind of addressing these challenges it's a great question. I was just thinking to Charles' question previously about, you know, sort of the challenges that the industry faces. I think one of the things that I, I learned in tech is often it's best to start with a big problem, break it down into something smaller and address it in bite-sized components. I know people often call that agile and, and whether that's a sort of an, a project being done in an agile way or even just, you know, the implementation of a strategic vision. I think one of the challenges that we face and the market faces as a whole is, okay, digital is coming ego, we need to spin up an enormous team. It's going to take us three to five years. We're going to invest hundreds of millions. And then is it going to be successful or not? Whereas the the approach I've seen in other industries is often more a case of, okay, somebody's got a good idea here. Let's put some budget behind that. So long as there's a, you know, it's a credible business plan. Let's put a bit of money behind that idea, set some realistic success criteria, and then address that component and build out from there. And I, I don't think we're very good at doing that in insurance, if I'm honest. I think there's a there is definitely a fear of failure. So that's something that I that I really want to see. I mean, certainly when I reflect on when Gilbert and I set out to start InsurEx, you know, where, where did we decide to focus? You know, it's an enormous market. You know, do you start in lead? Do you start in follow? Do you start in a particular class? Do you start in other markets? Do you any number of different things that can overwhelm you? And we, we, we quite quickly, after a bit of research, decided we were going to focus in on quite a narrow area really refine a USP and then build out from there. And I, I think that is that is where the, the tech firms are are extremely good. I think that's a very wise approach. And perhaps this is going to be a very unfair question on the back of that. But could you just sketch out briefly how this would work if all of this goes according to plan and you have a fully functional digital capacity exchange? What will it look like? What will the interactions between underwriters and brokers look like? And how will people be transacting business in a way that they don't today? Another great question, and it's a very wide-reaching one. I mean, I, I think, you know, rather than talking 20 years into the future, I think it's great to be thinking there. But if we talk in sort of the next in the next few, I think what Gilbert and I believe, and he spoke about this earlier in the way that it's about enabling the market, we think that the way the brokers and underwriters interact today probably is not fundamentally different in the sense that they still have deep networks. There's still a lot of interplay between those, those two sides of the market. I think a lot of the kind of more mundane and transactional components of those interactions will be digitized. So an underwriter will be setting a rule in our platform, whether that's automatically in our platform or through their own workbench. And a broker will be 
obtaining lead terms through the, through the normal channels that they do today. But a lot of that following capacity will just be able to be provisioned instantly, efficiently, maybe with a triage component. But importantly, something that takes days to weeks, even potentially up to a month, should really be reduced down to a matter of hours. That's our aspiration and that's our vision. So it's not a complete shift of the entire market's dynamics, but it's a shortening of the more kind of like commoditized components. Just on that, my vision almost was is kind of, if you want to buy a share, you can go on to Hargreaves Lounsdown or, or IG and, and you can just click a button, you can see the market live. And then if you want to go and execute as a retail customer, you can do that. And you know within a couple of seconds, you'll have that. Is the insurance market ever going to be quite like that? Probably not. It's a bit more nuanced. But I think we think a lot about how can we make the London market capacity better? And I think for a lot of it, that means it's faster and it's more relevant. If brokers can engage with their clients and say, look, I've got the certainty of execution because we now trade in a more digital manner. That's a win for the clients. It's a win for the brokers and it's a win for the carriers. Now, I was talking to somebody about these concepts the other day. They had a question which I wanted to sort of pass on to you, which is, what are the pros and cons of what we've been describing here versus the consortium model where you have a lead underwriter who other people want to follow? And so that, that underwriter sets up basically, you know, a consortium that people can choose to follow. They make some money out of consortium fees. People get to follow, hopefully, a, you know, an established underwriter. How does that differ from what we're describing here? And what are the pluses and minuses? We feel it's pretty similar in terms of the concept. You're, you know, you, you've still got the same dynamic of it. You know, you've got leaders and you've got followers and you've got people backing leaders and using using data to do that. I think there's the sort of the practical difference of you have a contractual relationship between a, a follower and a consortium and a leader that comes with benefits because you can establish a contractual framework. It also comes with costs. You have to pay a consortium leader and you probably have to pay a, a broker to set it up. And so there's kind of there are benefits of it. And some of our carrier partners are very interested in doing that. And we're actually working with some to set up some consortium structures as well. And then some are saying, no, we're, we're happy with just taking a data-driven approach and, and using your trading platform or our, our portfolio solution. So I think, yeah, again, it goes to that, what makes sense for individual carriers? And we, we look to help them kind of execute on that have talked previously in episodes about the kind of star underwriter and and how that role will continue going forward and if that's still got a place have you guys looked into that at all yeah definitely i mean i I think you know one of the things I, i spoke about earlier was this sort of idea of participation as a data set in other words the behavioral economics of the market is something that fascinates me and it's not something i think that's really being done in a in a very quantified sense before but equally even in the more kind of qualitative sense the sort of limited information out there and we're, we're working quite hard to bring those sort of qualitative surveys of the market who's widely regarded as a, a star underwriter as a as a uh, an expert leader alongside the quantitative data that we see to sort of start forming that view and and yeah when I said earlier that I think you're going to have that bifurcation in the market between super advanced leaders and, for that matter, super advanced followers, I think the star underwriter is a key component of that. They represent the focal point behind which you set your rule. I follow X underwriter because I recognize that they make phenomenally great underwriting decisions. I've got the data to back that up. And I've got the reinforcement of my peers who say that in their, uh, in, the, in their survey results. Presumably also you've got the data that you need in order to spot where your star underwriter is perhaps going off the boil and you should be backing off your lines a bit. 
Well, I think so. I mean, certainly one of the things that we think is quite exciting about algorithmic underwriting, or maybe rephrase that digital articulation of underwriting appetite, is the ability to really sort of preserve institutional knowledge, the ability for organizations to sort of build, map and understand the evolution in their own underwriting appetite over time and how that responds to external shocks in the market or to to whatever conditions there might be. And again, that's something that we've not really seen happen to this point. I think also linking to this point of the kind of the star underwriter and and kind of whether they're good or bad, there's how do we think about performance? And I think that's something that's going to kind of have a real, is going to have a sort of real leap forward in terms of how we think about what is performance. Is it performance in a given year? Is it performance across multiple years? Is it a low volatility of of result? Is it a kind of good underwrite, ULR, kind of, is it that you actually write lots of business when the market's hard? So there's kind of, there's lots of different ways to think about what is good. And I think we're really excited about digging into that with the kind of the amount of data we've got. It allows us to start asking those questions, which maybe haven't ever been asked before, except let's say outside Lloyds of London, maybe, and start to think about how do we think about that? One kind of recent example, looking at in the cargo market, we could actually see one carrier that was writing a very little business in, in 17 and 18 and then really came into the market. And that really allowed them to outperform the market. That's kind of one strategy. But there's lots of other strategies to, to outperform. So kind of, I think, yeah, how, how we think about performance will will really change over the next five years. That makes me think of something that we've been focusing on a lot recently, which is helping firms evolve beyond the concept of performance measurement to performance attribution. So actually deciding why was the performance the way it was? Did we perform well because we were lucky or because we have had a genuine competitive edge? And that can be very hard to measure and to form a view on when you're just looking at one underwriter or one firm's data. But of course, you have this unique perspective because you're seeing portfolios provided by brokers and that cover multiple underwriters, it's a lot easier to spot where one of them apparently has an edge, either in particular market conditions or particular classes of business or over a particular period of time. Yeah, and and that's where we're looking at how do we fuse that kind of the data we're getting at a policy level and how how does that interact with kind of segment level data? How does a a carrier performing across a number of classes or maybe at a kind of a, a group level, how are they performing? And I think we'll start to see some really interesting trends between kind of, can you take information about how a syndicate's performing at the top level and apply that to thinking at a at an individual class or, or vice versa? We talked about the you know the star underwriter, but really in the in the realm of portfolio underwriting, you have a star underwriter, but you also have a star actuary, right? And how you guys are thinking about portfolio analytics, you know, with respect to the more traditional sort of portfolio by portfolio techniques that you may have used in the past as actuaries, are you guys looking at portfolio analytics in a different way? What I've noticed is within the actuarial community, there are more and more actuaries being given a specific remit within their firm to be effectively a strategy actuary, to be looking at how underwriting strategy can be made more scientific. Often it does involve thinking about portfolio type underwriting where you can leverage data insights. So that's definitely another trend that's happening in the market. And It's interesting because when we've talked about the star underwriter concept in the future, partly I've been approaching it from the point of view of, you know, being a bit of a skeptic about the concept of star underwriters. And maybe our star underwriters are just the ones that got lucky, you know, for 10 years running. Somebody's going to get lucky, aren't they? 
But actually, the model we're now talking about, the algorithmic model, does rely on there being genuine experts, people who others are willing to back. But I think the key thing there is the data and the analysis that proves that it is worth backing that underwriter, because it can't be on reputation alone. And if a firm is going and taking a business plan to their board or to Lloyd's or to a regulator to say, you know, we, we're going to follow so-and-so on an algorithmic basis, that's not going to fly unless you've got good analytics to support why that is a sensible business decision. So to me, that's part of the real gold dust that you are developing in the InsurX business model is that, and especially as people start transacting, you're going to have really unique data to demonstrate why certain underwriters outperform. And I think that's going to be absolutely essential for people looking to build a strategy based on algorithmic or portfolio underwriting. I think it also comes, we've talked a lot on the podcast, and I know internally we're having a lot more conversations around behavioral biases. And I think, you know, to say that that star underwriter probably previously was more based on, you know, some kind of bias that we have within ourselves. We knew that person, they did well just last year, and therefore that's the front of your mind. You know, and it feels like in all aspects of our work, we're looking to really challenge those biases we have and yeah having some data to back up and, and Gilbert the way you're saying just looking at it in lots of different ways what do we actually mean when we say the star underwriter I think is a, is a really powerful way to, to challenge those biases that we have. Actually just kind of having thought about it I think there's also the star underwriter there's the star portfolio manager which is you know is it the actuary as you said it's more strategic or is it is it your star CEO or active underwriter that's managing their portfolio better and I think over the last kind of five, 10 years, a lot of the firms that have really outperformed have done some fantastic portfolio management. And so how do we think about that in interaction? You know, kind of how do you need to have star underwriters? How do you want to have kind of good portfolio management decisions? And, and how do you create a kind of engine that delivers that? And that's maybe the challenge for the kind of the leaders of the businesses to deliver. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, both Gilbert and Will, for joining us today. We normally like to end the podcast on some fun questions now there's two of you so we have two questions so one each I'm just going to ask it and we'll see who answers first maybe and that's how we'll do it so I'm going to ask what is your dream job outside of financial services F1 driver I mean I'm a terrible driver but in an alternative <laughs> universe I'm being Verstappen around the course as and, we speak and what team would you drive for Oh, there's a question. I, well, I'm a Man United fan, so I'm a glory seeker. So I'd probably be with Red Bull at the moment and uh, Mercedes <laughs> two years ago. Oh, James aside, I, I've, I've got a bit of a soft spot for Haas, actually. So maybe, oh, maybe, maybe I'd drive for them. So the second question, then, this one's going to be for you, Gilbert. Oh, no. <laughs> when you invite Jessica and I around to dinner in a few weeks' time, what are you going to make for us? <laughs> well, that might be quite a dangerous thing. I'm not sure I'm the world's best chef, but last year I, l I went to Italy on holiday and I, I had a lesson in how to make a Florentine steak and a tiramisu. So I think that's what I politely, I, I would cook for you and I think I could probably not kill you with that. So uh, <laughs> that's what would be on the menu if, if, yeah, if, if I was cooking. Florentine steak is literally one of my all-time favourite dishes. Oh, thanks again. It's been such fun, yeah. Thank you for having us. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, brilliant. That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode. This podcast is brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, Megan Frost, and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode.
podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.